I want to talk to you today about compromising. As we study through the book of Revelation, and we've come into the third church now, this church is all about compromise. But before I get to the church, I just want to talk to you about the church. What does the church consist of? Um, I've visited so many countries, and as you go through these countries, you can see all of these beautiful buildings which was erected and you get church names on the buildings and there's a lot of money spent on a lot of buildings and they stand there as churches if you look through europe a lot of churches it looks so religious um in australia in south africa and new zealand you know you get people who's got a small piece of land or a building which they own and that is called the church well, the Bible doesn't define the church as a building. Um, I see Paul when he went through on his missionary uh, uh, trips that he established churches. And especially when he came to Lydia, that they were going down to a stream and praying under trees. Uh, now, we know that the synagogues uh, existed back in the day and even today in Judaism. But that does not consist the church. No, my friend, the church is you and me. It's people. That is the body, the, the building blocks of, of Christ's church. Now, the reason why I start like that is, is, as you remember, when we look at the churches, the seven churches in the book of Revelation, that uh, we're not talking to buildings, we're talking to people. And people are individuals who come together and they have what uh, the Greek call koinonia, fellowship. Uh, it's the ecclesia coming together. Um, and there's a threefold application to this passage and to the Bible, but especially the book of Revelation. And that is a local uh, application, which means that there was a church there, which these letters addressed. And then there's also a prophetic application where when Jesus spoke to Paul there on the Isle of Patmos, that he's actually speaking to the churches in the 21st century, in the 20th century, in the 19th century, all the way back, all the centuries. He's speaking to the individuals in these churches who makes up the body of Christ. Now, each one of these churches has got a message. And that brings us to the local application to you and me. The first church that we looked into was the loveless church. And it's not just, you know, coming together in a church and, and people aren't friendly with each other. That's not what loveless means. That is only the fruit of not having love in your heart. If you walk into a place and the people, uh, they don't show any signs of love, means that the love of God is not living in their hearts. And the individuals brings that together. And when you see a group of people not showing the love of God, then you've got to ask the question. But I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you personally today. Because the Bible applies to our lives. Uh, when you think about the church in, in Ephesus, and you think about how they lost their first love, it's the love for Christ that they've lost. Um, and this is what it's all about. How is your life still for the things of God? How is your life still for God? How is your life still for the Word of God? And this is how you measure yourself against it. Now, last week we, we saw the church um, who were persecuted 
and you and I are getting persecuted individually. You know, you know the, the world is out to destroy. Satan with his agents in the world is out to destroy the church. How do you destroy the church? You bring fear amongst the individuals. You separate them. You throw them in jails. That sends a message to the other individuals not to gather together. And this is how he's trying to destroy the church. Now, when I speak today about the third church, it's a church of compromising. And this is so evident in our day. Not only are churches compromising these days, but individuals are compromising in their lifestyles. They, they, they give away things which they should not give away. Now, the definition for compromise is when two parties or two sides comes and each one gives away something to meet somewhere in the middle. I think you all know what compromise means. And again, like I said last week, some of you have studied this passage already in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, and read about the church in Pergamos. You would know it out and out, but I want to talk to you today and ask you, how is compromise in your life? Is, is it existing in your life? Where, where you've given up something which you, you morally held on to, uh, you were strong on something, but over time, you, you just said, look, I'll give away a little bit so that we can meet in the middle. Now, a classic example of this is, and we all had children, and I've got uh, beautiful children now um, and grandchildren. But as, as children grow up and, and you've got a curfew for them to come home at night, as good parents would have, I always say, you know, there's no good for people to hang around the streets after 12 at night. That's just, that's just, and I've never compromised on that. But let's say you've got somebody in your household and uh, they want to come home at 12 at midnight. And they say, mom, dad, that's the time I want to come home. But you, you feel more inclined to say 10 o'clock is my curfew the time for you. I think 10, 10 o'clock, if you go out from 6 o'clock, you know, four hours to have fun at night. I mean, that's it. Uh, and then, you know, you say, let's, let's meet halfway. Let, come, come back 11 o'clock. And your child might say, that's fine, and you're happy with me. You've compromised. Now, in some areas, compromise work. You know, if you, if you talk to business people today, they would tell you that sometimes when you negotiate over a contract, a legal contract or a financial contract, that compromise always works. You know, we meet each other in the middle. I give a little, you give a little, and we meet there. My friend, it will work maybe in the world and it might work with your teenagers, but compromise on the word of God and on your faith never works. I will say that again. Compromise in the church will never work. And we will see that evidently today in the word that Jesus Christ himself gives to John to give to the church in Pekamos, to give it to our church in Karam Downs and to give it to you individually. So we find this church today and let's read through that and let's study that to learn from that. So we read in Revelation chapter 2 verse 12. 
that uh, John writes down on the Isle of Patmos these words. He says, and to the angel of the church in Percamos write, this is Jesus's own words. He says, write these things. He says, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, I said it before, and I'm going to repeat myself. For each and every one of these churches, Jesus gives the characteristic or the title for himself to each one of these churches specifically. These titles were taken from chapter 1. You remember when he says to, to John, write the things which you have seen in the past and the things which are, which is the church age, and then the things which will come after this, after the rapture of the church. And there he gave a title of himself. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was and is and is to come, who was dead and came alive. All those titles he uses for each one of these churches. And for this particular church, he chose to use these words, the things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword out of his mouth. That's my add to that. Now, if we look at Percamos, the city of Percamos was the political capital of the Roman province. It was in, in, in what were called Asia the Less. So outside of Rome, this place was chosen, was picked to be the political cap capital. It was known for its culture and for its education. And you found one of the biggest libraries of its day in Percamos. So it was over 200,000 books back in the day, which was a massive library. And this is what it was known for. It was also an extremely religious city. Now, I want you to think about what I'm saying to you. Don't just you know, phase out now. So it is a political stronghold, but it's also a religious stronghold. Remember those two, political and religious. This is the same place. And this was so strong there. There were so many temples of the Greek and the Roman gods in that place. And not only that, there were three temples for what now started to happen in their day, uh, emperor worship or the, the Caesar worship where you had to go on your knees and put your hand in the air and say uh, Caesar is Lord. This happened th right through Asia. All of the commonwealth of Rome had to do this. They had to see Caesar as Lord, as a God. So we've got this political stronghold and a religious stronghold with all of these worship going on. But Percamos was especially known for the worship of Asclepios. Now Asclepios was the god of healing and knowledge. You know, religious place or a place which is known for its big libraries. But there was this god which they worship of healing. And very interesting, the signature of this uh, God was a snake. Uh, and now these days, if you see all the medical insignia, you will see uh, either a sword with two snakes wrapped around it. That comes from these times. This God, Asclepios, was, uh, 
was this healing God. And it was well known back in the day that there was a temple for this God, that people with sicknesses and diseases, they would go to this temple and, and be locked into a room at night, pitch dark, and you would lie on the ground there and there were tame snakes, not dangerous snakes, in that room. And, uh, you know, if one of these snakes would come around and just touch you, they believed it, it is similar to, to be touched uh, as the touch of God. And they believed they would have been healed by this. So there's a lot of pagan, pagan religion that went on in this city. And remember, a political city and a religious city. And we're talking about compromise. And we will see how this plays out. Now, to this church who's in this city, with this background, to them, he says, I come to you as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword in my mouth. And let me remind you what kind of sword that is. There's two words used for swords in the, in the New Testament. And this particular one is the Romphia sword. That's the Greek word for it, Romphia. Romphia was the big sword which you use in a battle. This is the sword which you will go in a battle to, to slay your opponents, to fight them. Now there's another sword that we spoke about, and that's the one you find in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, which says that the word of God is living and powerful, and it's like a two-edged sword which cuts between bone and marrow, spirit and soul, and it is the discerner of the heart. The word there is Makaira sword, which is a smaller sword. And it's amazing when you see the playoff between these two swords. Jesus says to this compromising church that I'm going to come to you to judge you with what? With the Romphia sword, which evidently, which is the word of God. The, the sword here that he speaks about is the word of God. And that word of God will come against the compromising church. But let me just say it. It will come against, because there is a personal application, it will come against you if you compromise your faith for the world. So how did this compromising happening, uh, how did the compromise happen in Pergamos? Well, there was a merging of church and state. And don't we see it these days? Don't we see it these days where the church of today wants to satisfy every single thing that the government and the state throws at it. You know, there's a notion these days that the church needs to be acceptable for the world or for the, for the governments. And this is what happened there. They, they merged. They became liberal. I mean, these days it's for some people more important to, to give the message out to the world that we're a liberal church. You know, we're not conservative about it. We're not fundamentally about the Word of God. We are liberal. You know, we see all views. We, we gave a little bit. We gave a little bit. You know, when you come to us and say, surely the Word doesn't mean what it says here. We say, yes, no, it doesn't mean what it said. You need to take it with a grain of salt. That is a compromising church. And you know what? To that compromising church, Jesus comes with the Word. 
the word. It, it just reminds me of a scripture verse in John 17, 17, when Jesus says, he says, sanctify them. Sanctify means set them apart by your word. The Logos and the Rima. Logos is the written word. Rima is the spoken word. Jesus says himself in that same chapter, he says, Father, the things which you've stalled me, I gave to them. I gave them. He's the Logos and he gave us Rima, which is the living word. So I find it absolutely fascinating when he comes to this church and he says, I'm going to judge you by the word which I've spoken. That's my paraphrase around it. So the word, when he, when he says here, the sharp to its sword, that is the word. Let me give you a reference again for that, to, to prove that the word there is the word of God. If you look at Ephesians chapter 6, and it speaks about the armor of God, which you need to put on to stand against the enemy, to stand against Satan. When it comes to, to the only, the only attacking offensive uh, a weapon that you need to put on it is the word of God Ephesians 6 17 he says and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God now that word there for, for sword there is the Machaira sword but Jesus says to us when we withstand the enemy we need to use the sword why does he use the Machaira sword there because he never intended for you and for me to fight and to battle Satan. No, no, listen to me carefully here. And, and I want you to, to really switch on here. Because these swords are important to understand. When Jesus says to the church there, I'm coming to you with the room fire swords. He's, he's, I'm going to judge you. You know, I'm coming against this uh, compromising. But when he says to us in Ephesians chapter 6 to take on the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, it is the Machaira sword, which is the smaller sword. So we're not there to fight Satan. He never said to us, he always said to us, stand against Satan, resist him and he will flee from you. Now we find so many ministries coming in just to fight Satan. We're going to take him on. That's not your and my work. We need to withstand him with the weapons that Paul talks about, which is prayer and the word of God. That sort evidently. That sort when he speaks there in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17, when he says we need to take the sword of the Spirit, the Machaira of the Spirit, is the same sword that he speaks about in Hebrews chapter 4 verse, verse 12, when he says the Word, the, the Word of God is living and powerful, uh, and it's a two-edged sword which cuts between bone and marrow, spirit and soul, and it's the discerner of the heart. The Machaira sword, my friend, is the sword that cleanses us it's the sword that cuts in your heart it discerns it's the word of God that we read and we change into the image of the son of God don't get them mixed up but to the church here here in Pekamos, he says, I'm bringing the wrong fire sword to you. And let it be known, preacher, who makes yourself so liberal that this wrong fire sword is against you. The judgment sword of God is against any preacher who will compromise the word of God for his own gain. 
So he says this to them. Now let's continue and see what he then says to this church. He says in Revelation 2.13, I know your works. You see, there's nothing that we can hide from him. He knows our works as a church and individually. And where do you dwell where Satan's throne is? And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, was killed among you where Satan dwells. Really interesting, like I said to you, this is a political stronghold, but it's also a pagan religious stronghold. And this is what Jesus saw. He says, I know your works and where you live. Uh, uh, you can't hide from him. Now, this doesn't mean that, you know, Percamos was the exact location for Satan. You know, if you're looking up in, up in the phone book and you open up there and you say, I wonder where Satan lives. And you open up there and he goes, Satan, uh, you know, residence Percamos. Oh, I'll go to the city of Percamos and there I'll see Satan. No, no. That's not what he means by that. Okay. I've, I've said it before. And I'll repeat myself again. It's also not, also not. This is a fable that some people believe that Satan is, is living in hell. That's where his residence is. If you open up the phone book and you go, Satan, hell, he's the master of the king of hell who punishes people. That's a, that's a fable. That's not biblical. No, no. No, he is going to and fro the world right now. He's the prince of the power of the air. He hasn't got a residence. If you open up the phone book, there's no address for him because he's roaming around. Go and read Job. Read Job. And you'll find the answer there. He's roaming around. Why? Because Peter said he's like a roaring lion who looks who he can destroy. He's not going to sit on a throne somewhere. Yes, there's, there's demons who's also doing the work. Yes, there's also sons of disobedience. But he himself, he is roaming around as described in the book of, of Job. So th this is his stronghold. What does it mean? Um, it's because of this political and this religious strength in the city. And the combination of those two made it so powerful, so powerful. As we see in our day, it's, it's happening again and it's coming again. Let me just give you, if you read on in Revelation, you will see exactly what Jesus says here is going to happen after the rapture. Religion is going to become strong. There's so many, there's so many movements in the world to get a one world church, a global church. I've been approached by one such group who wanted me to go and speak on their platform. And I, I then said no, because I will not sit under their banner. And be classed as one of them. No. Even if they brought me in there just to give my view. I will not. I will not compromise. Uh, later on in the book of Revelation. You'll see that religion is going to bring in the Antichrist. And then and then the, the Antichrist and, and the, 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 the government will turn against, against religion. Go and read it all in Revelation. We may get there. If I keep on preaching through Revelation. So you can say that in this place is where, especially in this place is where the power of Satan was strong. It's called a stronghold. Okay. 
it, it means there's a tower and, and there's, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of work going on there around what's happening in that place. But that reminds me of the scripture verse. And it should remind you of a scripture verse as well. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, when John writes to us, he says, You are of God, little children. And he's talking to the, to the uh, born-again, blood-washed children of God. He says, You are of God, little children. And I've overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Satan's power might have been strong in that place, but here's the small church, and I believe still within that church, maybe individuals who still did not compromise because of the power of God. You can't turn to God one day and say, but Lord, everybody, everybody did it. And I followed them. Yeah? <laughs> my mom always said when I did something naughty, and I said, oh, but it's my nephews, you know, it's my nephews, they, they pulled me into that. And they said, so if they jump in into the hole, you're going to jump in as well? No, everybody's got a choice what they do. You always have a choice. Brother and sister, the Holy Spirit power is stronger in us than the power that's in the world. Now watch this. He says to them there, he says, I know your works and where you dwell with Satan's stronghold. I've explained that. And then he goes on to say, and you hold fast. You hold fast. That means that that word hold fast, that phrase there means you had the power to hold on to my name. If only today a lot of churches who compromise can only hold on to the name of God, of Jesus, salvation, Emmanuel, God with us. He says, you hold on to my name. And then he says, secondly, and did not deny my faith. You did not deny my faith in Christ, which is really powerful. He says, even in the time of Antipas. Now, Antipas, we don't know a lot about him. I've searched for it. I've searched other, uh, other commentaries. I've searched books of, of, you know, what the scholars say. Not much said about this man, Antipas. But he must have been well known because he's been called out by Jesus himself by name. How wonderful is it that Jesus calls him by name? Because he's a martyr. He died for his faith. He was a witness. Now that should have brought fear into the small group who did not compromise. But yet they held on and they did not compromise at that point. But he's speaking here now to the church and to some individuals who did compromise. And because he says, but, the big but now, which is a sharp contrast, in verse 14, he's addressing two specific teachings that came into the church, which we see today as well. This is why I say it's a prophetic word. What you're going to hear now, I want you to look very carefully because it is rife in, the, in some churches today. Two specific teachings. First of all, verse 14, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak, the king, to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. This, if you know your Bible, is self-explanatory. 
because this is a priest that was there, Balaam. Um, and this is the first teaching that he addresses. And this teaching is liberalism, it's acceptance, it's compromise. So you ask the question, what is the doctrine of Balaam? Well, Balaam was a, and is, a classic example of a corrupt teacher, of a corrupt priest, of a corrupt pastor, of a corrupt evangelist, of a corrupt self-proclaimed apostle, of a corrupt minister. You can name it all. He's a classic example of that. And, and again, like I say, the church is full of them today. Today, And it's your responsibility and task to identify them. It's yours to discern like a Berean. So we find this whole story around Balaam and Balak in Numbers uh, chapter 22 to 24 and, and also in chapter 31. So what did Balaam do? Balaam came... And Balak, the king, came to Balaam and he, he said, curse Israel. And he, you know, one of the things he wouldn't do, he wouldn't do that because he knew that if you curse Israel, you, 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 you're in serious trouble. But he went back to Balak and he said to him, no, I can't curse them. But what I would do is I would influence them to take, to take wives from amongst other nations, which God said they shouldn't do. And that would lead them to sexual immorality, and that would lead them into worshipping idols. These, these foreign wives, these strange wives, would lead them into, into worshipping foreign idols, not God. And the teachings started to influence the nation and the word from the priest came you know he's the man of god he hears from god he's the only one who hears from god and there were no discernment there and the nation just fell for it and you can go and read the whole account there it was a terrible account how how god punished them that's the teaching which is still going on they've accepted sexual morality as a choice that's what he started tea preaching to them. And it's the same today. You know, people say, whatever you do, it's your choice. You see, the church today accepts way more sin than ever before. The church today accepts way more murders of unborn children than ever before. Because it's the liberal thing to do. It's the choice thing to do. So this is one of the teachings that's in the church right now. It is okay to sin, they say. It is okay. You know, and you can have God and worship God on Sundays, but during the week, you're your own man. You know, if it feels good, do it. In fact, that leads into the second teaching that Jesus hates. And we see this in verse 15. That's, you also have those who hold the doctrine of Nicotolians, which thing I hate. Two teachings, the one of Balaam and Barak, which, which enticed people through preaching to do sexual immorality and worship uh, false idols. And then now the other one is the teaching of the Nicotolians, which is also in our churches today. Now, what is this te teaching? 
Well, the word Nicot Alliance means the destruction of people. So what they're teaching is destroying people. But it also means Nico, Leviathans, people controllers. So they want to control people. And this is a very, very dangerous teaching. And you've got to be aware of this. Hear it from this preacher. Be aware of this. So this teaching is so dangerous that it muddies true biblical theology. And you will see as I explain it now. Because what these people said is they said that man inherited a good spirit. We were all born with good spirits. You know, man is good on the inside. Not defiled. Nothing can touch that as well. But the flesh is evil. And God knows this. So he accepted like that. He accepted that's how he made man. Good on the inside. We've got good intentions, don't we? And if I've only got one or two good intentions, but I live like a pig, that's fine. Because the, the flesh is evil as it is. Go as she is, mate. Just do it. Because you'd be okay. God is a God of love. How can God hate sin like this? No, no. He loves everybody and whatever you do in your flesh will not affect your spirit. That is the teaching. That is a very liberal teaching. So you can live an immoral life. But what does God say about this? What does he say about this? He says, I hate it. I hate it. It's a thing which I hate. Now I read another passage in Proverbs chapter 6 of seven things that God hates. Let me give them to you. Proverbs 6, 16. These six things God hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Firstly, a proud look. Selfishness. Secondly, a lying tongue. Stop telling lies. Hands that shed innocent blood. Murderers. Abortion. I'll leave it over to you. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. And listen to this one now. Feet that are swift in running to evil. A false witness who speaks lies. And one who sows discord amongst brethren. This is God's word, not mine. So there's two teachings there. The teaching of Balaam and the teaching of Nicodemus, which is today happening. And let it be known, it's also a personal application. So you be careful of those two things, whether you conduct and apply those things to your lives. Now, what does Jesus say to John and to us? How do we get away from compromising? He says, repent. Repent means change your mind. Things which your mind said to you was okay, you need to change your mind to say it's not okay. And I'm going to discipline my mind under the discipline of Jesus Christ. I'm going to take cap captive of my thoughts under the discipline of Christ. And I'm going to repent of this and say, Lord, not I'm sorry. No, no, Lord, I've sinned against you. And sin needs a savior. And sin needs to be forgiven. And this is what he says. There in verse 16. He says, repent or else I will come quickly and will fight against them with the wrong fire of my mouth. 
It can't be clearer than that. I will come to them and fight them with the wrong fire, with that big sword of judgment. So if you do not repent, there's no gray area. There's no compromise in this verse. None. Salts, donuts. If you do not repent of your, your compromising minister who preaches this stuff, you will see the on fire sword of God. Individual who lives this lifestyle, turns up on a Sunday, try to live holy on a Sunday, then go during the week and do your compromising, you will see the on fire sword of God. I know I'm animated about this, but this is just the word of God and it's powerful. This is the battle cry of Jesus Christ. It's the battle cry. Repent or else. There's no other way. There's no, listen to me. There's no salvation without repentance. Repentance brings in the blood of Christ. Listen, repentance brings in the blood of Christ with whom you are saved and washed whiter than snow. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. So he says, I will fight against you. And then in verse 17, he says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. You know, some people try to make it so complicated. What is the hidden manna? What is the white stone? As if that's going to open up, a, or there's a big theological thing. No, no, there's not. There is simple explanations for a lot of things in the Bible. Opened up by the Holy Spirit. So, what is the hidden manner? Well, we go back to Exodus. Remember the Israelites? They were saved from Egypt. The food pots of Egypt. Egypt represented sin. God saves them out of that into the wilderness. And while walking in the wilderness, they start complaining. They say, there's a grumbling in my tummy. I'm hungry. Not trusting God, they started murmuring, complaining. And, and God said to Moses, he said, look, from tomorrow, you will find a small substance on the ground, which looks like bread. No one could make it over again. It's never been repeated. It's a food from heaven. That's what it is. In fact, the word manna, that's what it says in the Bible means, what is this? What is this? You have to, during the week, pick for the day what is good for today. And then for the weekend, you pick one more. Some people didn't listen. They tried to pick today for tomorrow, but then the next day it was full of worms. God has got a specific instruction. Well, my dear friends, that manner was a representation of Jesus Christ. That is it. That's a representation of him. Uh, Jesus touched on this himself in John chapter 6. He fed the multitude and they followed him and they ran after him. After he multiplied the bread and they came for more food. And he, and he, and he addresses the, this with them. He says in John 6.33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
back in the desert, that was a representation of Christ. It was a symbol of Christ. The manna came from, from God. He came down from heaven and he gave them life. He gave them nutrition. They could eat that manna every single day and live on that for the rest of their lives if God wanted it to be like that. That is it. The bread from heaven came. Similarly, he says then, and then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Whoa, every day bread from heaven. I don't have to work. I can play PlayStation every day, lie on the couch, watch Netflix, watch Stan, watch sport, just be, you know, no, no. <laughs> I just thought about something else, but I won't go there. So they say, Lord, give us this bread always. You know, it's so easy. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Oops, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Do you think they wanted to come to him? That was too hard work, man. We, we want just to, to drop down. And why did he say to them back in the desert, he says, take enough for every day. And we see this happening now. People don't want to do that. They come on a Sunday. Yep, yep, yep. They come on a Sunday into church, and they bring a big basket full. Oh, preacher, oh, pastor, give us a blessing for the week. We want to fill our cup. Here it is, Lord. Fill my cup, Lord. Uh, fill it up, Lord. Uh, quench this thirsting of my soul on a Sunday. And we've got this big bucket. And this will carry us through until next Sunday. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Even in the Old Testament, it is evident it didn't work that way. He said to them, the manna, the, what is this? This is Christ. In the New Testament. He's the bread from heaven. You need to eat him every single day. To sustain your spiritual soul and well-being. How do I eat Christ every day? I pray every day. I read my Bible every day. I spend time with him. It's a, it's a relationship. There's no compromise. If you compromise the next day. That same word will become worms to you. And you will reject it. This is why people come and they say, I, the word is too hard for me. You know, they come and they say, it's too hard to be a Christian. I've got to give up all of these things of Egypt. No, no, no. I just want my basket, you know, that I can live outside. And when I get hungry, I dip into the basket and take some of it. That is a compromised life. And Jesus says, repent thereof. Let me continue on because I think I'm, I'm laboring that fact a little bit too long. So what is the hidden manna? The hidden manna is Jesus Christ every day of your life. And he says to them, he who overcomes, I will give you this manna. Who is this manna? It's Jesus in your life. He's my Sabbath. He's my rest. But then he also say, he also say, I will give him a white stone. Now, they would know exactly what he meant. We in the Western world in the 21st century, we need to go back. And some people, I've heard some people just would come out with really interesting, oh, I think it's this, I think it's that. When he spoke about a white stone, there's a few ways that they used white stones back in their days. One was when you were invited to a banquet, the master of the banquet would give you a white stone so that when you come into the banquet, you produce your white stone and you get entry into the banquet. That could be applied here. They would have known that applying. 
Secondly, back in the day, a white stone would have been somebody who gives a white stone to somebody else. That means there's a special relationship there, special friendship there. But I think this one applies better. Is the one where they used stones in a court of law to vote whether a party is guilty or innocent. They had black stones and they had white stones. And the law will sit or, or the court will sit and you know the defender will give his case and the accusations will bring their case and the jury will then vote by putting a white or a black stone in the bucket. And I think, I believe this is what Jesus meant and when he said that to them that's what would have come up in their mind because he earlier in this passage he says I will come to you and there's going to come a judgment from the room fire sort remember that and this is why I believe this applies better to the judgment application of the white stone he says in fact to them that if you come to me and you've got this white stone that is an indication that you are innocent of compromising of compromising not only that but there will be a new name written and that new name written is a reference to a personal relationship if you've got somebody's name a new name which nobody else know you're in a special relationship with that person if, if, if I've got a name which I say John Francisco. I'm just using that name. Just rolls off the tongue. But nobody knows I'm Francisco. I'm only going to give my name Francisco to the inner group, the people who's got a special relationship with me. My wife, she might know I'm Francisco. Or somebody else might know. I am giving that selectively to the ones who's in a personal relationship. This is what it means. Now, um, by the way, my name, you can ask my wife, my sisters, I can show my driver's license. I, my name is not Francisco, okay? But here it is, we've got a special name that Christ gave us and that gives us a special personal relationship with Him. So that is the church. Now, as you know, I said I'm going to, you know, uh, uh, compare this with the kingdom parables and I hurry because this is a really interesting one because the the third kingdom parable in Matthew chapter 13 is a really interesting one uh, out of Matthew 13 I've heard two parables been preached the most the first one which is the sower and this parable the third one out of Matthew 13 uh, a lot of preachers don't go into the other parables and preach them like these two let me read the parable and I'll explain Matthew 13, 31, and another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it's grown, it's greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air comes and nests in its branches. What is Jesus trying to tell them? Remember, Matthew, Mark, John, Luke are transitional books. They were written under the Old Covenant in the New Testament. A few, chapter, uh, a few weeks ago I preached about this. You can go and look for them on YouTube. 
So he didn't talk about the church to them. The church, he only spoke to Peter when he says, Peter, this on this rock, my church will be built and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the church only came after he died and it was established at Pentecost. Okay. If, if you've been in our church and follow my preaching, you, you will know what I'm talking about. So he speaks to them about the kingdom of heaven. And now it's really interesting. He says, it's like a mustard seed. Now a mustard seed we know is a small seed. And why do we use mustard for? What is mustard? Mustard gives taste and flavor to food. That's what you use it for. It's, it's not a food in itself. It's not as if I'm going to sit here with a bucket of mustard seeds and eat that as, as a meal. No, no. You take mustard and you put it in food to give it taste and flavor. That is what the kingdom of heaven should be. Kingdom of heaven equals church. That's what the church needs to be. That's what the church in Percamos needed to be. In that political environment, in that pagan religion environment, the Church of Christ in Percamos needed to bring flavor. Because I'll tell you one thing, friend, I love my food, as you can see, and as you know. But I also am picky with my food. If you dish up food for me with no flavor in it, and you dish up food with flavor in it, next time I know what I'm going to pick. I know where I'm going to go. If I love food, I'm going to go there again. So the flavor in the church should have been so in Percamos that the political strength people there should have been attracted to that flavor. The people in pagan religion should have been attracted to that flavor. But let it just be known now that if you've got a church like Percamos, there's no attraction in it. It's all fluff. It's all show. It is all biz, but no foundation. So he says the kingdom of heaven is like this mustard seed. Now, then he comes to a problem in this. Now, I wonder if you've picked this up. He qualifies it. He says, it's like a mustard which a man took and he showed in his field, which indeed is the least of the seed. So it's very small, but when it's grown, it's greater than the herbs and becomes a tree. Now, stop right there. I haven't got time, but I want you to go back to Genesis, okay? When God created everything in the six days, He specifically created a difference between herbs and trees. There is a line which He created these things. Okay, it wasn't just a mash of things. And then, you know, herbs sort of found their own way, evolved out of that, and trees. No, no. God created meticulously the herbs and the grasses of the fields, draw a line, and then He created the trees which produces food. I want to be clear about this. And He mentions it in here for us to pick it up. He says, but when it's grown, it is greater than the herbs. And there's the problem. The mustard seed was only supposed to be a herb, but it now became a tree. It's outside of his function, of his purpose. And it's greater than it becomes a tree. But now he says, and it 
so that birds of the air come and they nest in its branches. So what is the birds in the air? Birds in the New Testament is evil. Okay, it represents evil. Look at the first parable as, as a reference. The, the seed that went by the wayside, the birds of the air came and they scooped it up. And here it's the same thing. Birds is not a good thing. So this thing which was supposed to be a flavor became a tree. It's outside of its boundary. It's something that it does not need to be. Go back to, to Perkamos and we apply this to Perkamos. A political stronghold and a religious stronghold, they were never supposed to emerge into a compromising place. So is the church today never, never needed to be the spirit of the world. But the spirit of the world is now in the church. And that draws in birds who doesn't belong there. I can name you a raft of people who claim to be ministers of the word of God who do not belong there. You see, this is why this is applicable and, and comparable to the third church which Jesus warned them before time. Now let me finish by saying, God do not want us to compromise. I'll give you one scripture verse and we'll pray. In 1 Kings, Elijah came before all of these Baal prophets and the people who looked upon the spectacle on the Mount Carmel. And he said to these people in 1 Kings 18, 21, he came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two options? You see, it's God or it's the world. How long will you jump between them and compromise? How long? If the Lord is God, follow Him. Come on, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. But the people answered Him not. That is the same today. We still want to play God in some churches or play church. So there you go, my friend. Do not live a compromised life. In, in his words, follow God or follow the world. It is a sad church. It's not there today anymore. I don't believe we will find this church in heaven one day. I don't believe this church received the white stone nor the hidden manna do you want the white stone do you want the hidden manna do you want that name that no one knows come to jesus and repent heavenly father i thank you for your word i thank you that it is sharper than a two-edged sword father but i also understand that you will come against compromise and i pray lord if there's anybody who hear my voice or this word and are convicted Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit will guide them and help them to repent and to turn back to you. In Jesus' name, Amen.